Hi, um, I'm Karime. Hi, Karime. Hey, I'm Grace. <laughs> and we're here with um, Dr. Serena Agabal-Thielen for our podcast for our Contemporary Civilization class with Professor Ahmed. Thank you for being here, Dr. Thielen. You are very welcome. Absolutely. And so with, with this introduction, we're so thankful to have you here. And we would just like to start off this podcast um, with the question, would you mind telling us about your work, research, education, and what drew you to this field of study? Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, this has been a long journey that uh, has taken me through um, a number of personal and professional experiences. So I'm going to definitely condense it <laughs> for the sake of this podcast, uh, which means leaving out important elements. But uh, so my research is on uh, indigenous social movements, theater and politics, especially in what is now known as Latin America. But uh, my work uh, crosses uh, the Americas, Abya Yala, really drawing connections between indigenous peoples of the North and South, uh, since that is also, uh, those those connections are are ancestral and also are very revealing um, politically and for our social science studies. Uh, What led me in particular to my research topic uh, on a particular seminal Maya theater group in uh, in, in Tzologia, Guatemala, Um, part of it is uh, my own upbringing. Uh, I am Filipina, American, Tagalog, Ibanag, grew up um, learning about um, through uh, my neighbor's involvement in the Civil Rights Commission of of our town, doing a lot of, you know, my own reading at a very, you know, since elementary school in the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. Um, Myself became a community organizer uh, in the South Bronx, always interested in, um, in, in, histories of colonization in my own family history, as well as questions of race and and class, you know, things I was witnessing growing up. Um, And uh, and so in this journey to um, being a community organizer, I had worked with uh, Maya returned refugees in Guatemala right after um, college, I saw, again, connections between indigenous study, uh, struggles in the Philippines and Guatemala, history of U.S. imperialism in both contexts. Um, and then as an organizer, got really interested in questions of culture, how that uh, how, how, how that influences community organizing. And so with that, I got a Fulbright to return to Guatemala, um, looking at Maya women's leadership. And um, and I decided to bring the arts back into the picture. I had grown up uh, doing dance, learning um, diverse styles of dance internationally from uh, friends at, in school. Um, 
you know, uh, from Caribbean dance, African-American dance, uh, Latino, uh, Latin American dance, uh, South Asian and Filipino dance. I mean, just uh, Korean dance. And um, so very vernacular forms of dance that I was I was learning and um, and 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 be, got trained in theater of the oppressed, uh, did that work. Uh, with our organization, Mothers on the Move in the South Bronx, and just kind of wanted to have my eye out to see if I would meet any arts groups uh, in, in Guatemala. So my work, my research, my established Fulbright project was on a land rights group, uh, land rights movement in Guatemala. And it just so happened, I mean, just complete serendipity that the, you know, the region where um, or I was uh, doing this community-based work happened to be like, I happened to come upon this theater group that was just this um, groundbreaking theater group at this, for you know, the last uh, decade or so, and um, and was based in this community. And um, at that point, I was not yet in graduate school, so you know, we just became friends. Um, yeah, like I had friends here in, in New York who were um, Salvadoran and uh, Chicano, uh, like grassroots video makers. So they encouraged me to bring a camera and a, like a video camera. And uh, so when the theater group saw this, they invited me to, uh, you know, to accompany their performances and asked me if I could take the video and the uh, you know, the photos, and I'm like not professionally trained. My friends just basically taught me how to do this. Um, and so that's how that's how I came upon this research project. That is so fascinating. Yes, as an indigenous woman myself, I'm of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma and someone who's really involved in like traditional tribal dance and um, like cultural activities, just like seeing and reading about your experience with um, indigenous people and and the ways in which they express culture is so interesting. So thank you so much for talking about some of your work and um, your history is definitely interesting and we are, are so thankful to have the opportunity to talk to you today. And so with that, I guess I will pass over um, the next question to uh, Karine. Um. One of the issues that we touch on in our CC class is the lack of women in our syllabus. Um, how does the role of women fit with indigenous societies today, especially um, with the Mayan youth that you've worked with? Um, what prominent issues in a contemporary sense do indigenous women struggle with? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and thanks for prefacing that. I'm, I'm still um, <laughs> grappling with that that uh, piece of the lack of, of women in your syllabus. Um, so the first thing that uh, I, I want to say is that um, in, uh, so in, uh, in the Philippines, uh, women traditionally ancestrally have had a very uh, strong role as healers as leaders, political leaders, uh, uh, before colonization. Uh, and, and so this is something that um, if you look at contemporary struggles in the Philippines uh, has, has, has shifted. Um, and this is the same for uh, 
many indigenous nations, the strong role of women uh, through tr in, in traditional roles um, throughout throughout time. Um, contemporarily in in Guatemala, uh, so again, in terms of traditional leadership, traditional leadership, the Kamalbeh, the leaders that are recognized by the community, uh, again, is a role that is reserved for, you know, since ancient times um, eh, for, eh, for duality uh, between spouses, which generally traditionally has been uh, a man and a woman. What this means is that there are women in leadership roles uh, in a way that is not always seen in the contemporary political system, as you're saying, women not showing up in things like syllabi. Um, So, so some of the struggles that uh, that women are facing now, uh, particularly young women, uh, who I was in conversation with, uh, who are active in um, in theater, in the arts, and you know local social organizations, political organizations, um, is really a. So there's a the, the larger societal issues of violence, um, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, discrimination, and then there's their everyday uh, issues that they're confronting with simply being able to have access to go to meetings, to go to school, to participate in a theater group. Um, in this current uh, colonial context, um, what has happened is that there is a lot of control by male figures in their life, whether it is spouses, whether it is uh, fathers, um, who really get to determine how much they get out of the house. And it is really contemporarily seen as uh, improper for my uh, young women or my uh, older women um, to to leave the house on their own. I mean, it's 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 um, it, so so simply the the fact of of being able to participate in a theater group is a huge deal for a Maya woman. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's basically some of the things that, that they're, they're working on. There are many women who, uh, it's affected the level of participation in the theater groups. If you see the theater groups that I, that, um, I have written about, you can see that there's mostly male participants, uh, and that is largely due to this dynamic. Um, and so, you know, uh, this has to do with, uh, uh, male control over women's uh, bodies, over power of various forms, um, their own creative expression, uh, you know, what is what uh, their view of their sexuality, view of their uh, political potency. So I will pause there to not, <laughs> so I can let you ask another question or if you have any, uh, if you want to follow up on that at all. Um, I mean, no, that was such a full answer. Um, thank you. I think that that what you were saying about like the women being um, 
like in dance, I think that's uh, very insightful. And I'm, I'm glad to see that there are women in, in the youth group in particular that are partaking in that. Um, but I guess the next question can go over to Grace. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Truly beautiful. Um, and so my question for you is that our CC class is presented in conjunction with the class colonization, decolonization. Um, how would you personally define modern day colonialism? Mm -hmm. So first of all, uh, colonization has never ended. Uh, in indigenous contexts, um, co colonizers became settlers and occupied indigenous territories and haven't left. Um, so settler colonialism, I'm not sure if it's a term that you have uh, discussed in your class, but to give a quick definition of it, it's, it's, it's um, seen as composing two primary uh, dynamics, which is land dispossession, so dispossessing indigenous peoples of land, and also uh, genocide and violence against indigenous peoples. Um, so today, modern day colonialism, uh, one aspect of it is settler colonialism. Um, genocide, so how is genocide and violence happening today? Uh, in certain contexts, you know, we can talk about uh, mass incarceration, um, and, and certainly that involves violence. And also, we are literally, in, in, in places like Guatemala, we are literally talking about genocide. Uh, genocide that was um, document, documented and named as such uh, by the UN in the 1980s. And I'll, I'll pause there because I can get into more of these dynamics in a bit. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. That's a really insightful answer. And, and I think that's definitely a clarification that needs to be made, especially in, in systems of higher education in, in the fact that settler colonialism is is almost quite ironic in the way that colonialism is still, still exists today and it never stopped. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that, um, I will pass it over to Karine. Thank you, Grace. Um, it's clear uh, that native peoples have been directly harmed by a lack of resources, especially on reservations. Um, and this has been reported through examples of food deserts, a lack of water, lack of medical, medical care. Um, and most recently, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, those disparities have been so clear and glaring. Um, within your studies and your research, can you elaborate on any of the previously listed disparities or discuss one of your own? And what do you think are the historical background and direct causes of one or multiple of these issues? Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, really, it's all, dis all uh, disparities of resources, of infrastructure, of uh, power, all these imbalances really can be directly traced to um, colonization. I mean, of course, as, um, as indigenous community members will say, it's not that indigenous societies are perfect before colonization and not that there are, you know, not issues um, that were being worked through and worked on, but the level, the degree, the depth to which uh, the the whole scene of power changed with colonization um, 
is is to a scale that uh, that is what is needing to be addressed today. So uh, concrete examples of that uh, in in Guatemala. I mean, there are currently pro protests. Uh, by young people, um, indigenous and mestizo in Guatemala against the high levels of government corruption and violence and just impunity, absolute impunity uh, in which people in power can uh, commit uh, atrocities and get away with it. I mean, everything as big as uh, war crimes and genocide to things that are just um, small, you know, like in a personal example where we were living in Guatemala, things like illegal logging happening, uh, you know, in, in, in our area and, and just not being able to um, or speak up about it or, or just um, the physical uh, violent assaults on people that are, have become every day and no one can speak up about it because uh, people are concerned about violent uh, reprisals afterwards, um, uh, both officially and unofficially. Um, so, so how does this relate then to colonization? Well, if we think about why impunity, why violence, why corruption in the in the government and outside and among all authorities in the society, uh, this has come about because indigenous governance systems were absolutely uprooted uh, with colonization. Um, that means that when we're talking about indigenous uh, governance systems, we're talking about uh, processes from the community level and upwards in which uh, or leaders uh, are nominated by the community or named by the community or sought out by the community because they are respected, because they have you know, been seen in um, incremental leadership roles from when they were very young and the community has seen that they have certain uh, leadership qualities and values that they're bringing into their interactions um, that they come to be you know the community wants to hold them up and sees them as kind of naturally sees them as people that they turn to for advice and counsel um, that kind of system was um, not, I mean, was decimated, manipulated, um, degraded in different ways uh, in the colonization process, both, uh, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, and in various forms up through today. Um, I'll give a quick example, even in the genocide period in the 1980s, uh, the Guatemalan military would um, take Maya names, Maya concepts, and give those names to military. So things like Caibiles, which is a Maya name for a prince, and give it to um, their their most brutal uh, soldier forces to really manipulate what that you know what the like what people's internal reaction to that name and concept is. Um, so because of that uh, twisting of leaderships through, throughout colonization, um, Spanish and then uh, current uh, neocolonial um, processes have imposed uh, ways that, you know, what Maya peoples will say are foreign, a foreign 
uh, forms of leadership and political power imposed by force, imposed by money. And uh, so we're basically talking about um, guns and money, guns and gold. Uh, that's what props up political power since the Spanish invasion. That means that you know any descendant of, of leadership today has to be propped up. I mean, that's the recipe basically for corruption. Wow, I didn't know a lot of that. Um, and it's, I'm so glad that I, I mean, I get to hear it now, but um, thank you for sharing that thing about other, your ideas about like leadership. Um, and I think that I would agree that um, it's important to like give the platform and the power to indigenous people. Great, could you uh, lead us into the next question? Yeah, and thank you so much, Dr. Thielen. That was a very interesting point and it's, it's very, it's very shocking and almost disturbing to hear about the names being used for for militant forces that are not indigenous. It's just it's just absolutely astounding. And your perspective is valued beyond belief. So thank you. And with that, um, I will move over to the next question, which is almost, you know, similar to the last one. And it is, in what contemporary situations do you see colonialism and the effects of generational trauma on indigenous communities? Mm -hmm. Yes. So yeah, that definitely uh, closely related to the previous question. Um, I mean, obviously the, the leadership uh, political systems uh, that in, in instills generational trauma. Um, I'll talk just very briefly on some of the, basically all these larger structures of power lead to interpersonal effects. Uh, I mean, in the North, there's a, a lot of um, community work and scholarship um, being done on indigenous, the boarding schools. Um, there is a parallel of that in Guatemala in, in terms of violence, the violence from um, from the counterinsurgency, the the genocide, and uh, and the ways that the counterinsurgency was conducted, it was it was called genocide because it, it, there was a scorched earth campaign that raised communities and also um, recruited forcibly recruited paramilitary soldiers and came into Maya communities and forced community members to turn on each other because of the high level of violence. I mean, because um, otherwise they would uh, have severe torture and atrocities so that I won't get into the, the scale of the violence, but what it led to um, was that that community members had to tell on each other, had to say that other people were guerrillas, um, and this broke down the strong social solidarity uh, within and among indigenous Maya communities. Now that the, there is strong, there is, there are very strong links today. It's it's incredible that after this that kind of violence that there still exists really strong linkages today and connections, but still uh, absolutely has to be recognized the destruction that this wrought. Um, that destruction also led to massive uh, migration and displacement of people from their communities. Um, 
massive migration both internally to more urban areas to Guatemala City. Uh, that, of course, led to economic dispossession, uh, higher levels of poverty, and has eventually, through time, um, produced what we're seeing right now with a crisis in mass migration towards uh, the U.S. border and then displacement all around, all along that route. Um, so I think I got a little bit away from specifically the generational trauma, but, uh, but all of these processes have led to interpersonal effects. Um, you know, uh, the uh, gender dynamics, what I was saying before about um, male authority figures uh, controlling lives of daughters and spouses. I mean, that has partly to do with this. Um, just so many ways that um, that violence is being expressed interpersonally that affects uh, Indigenous peoples today that can be traced to these larger and historical social dynamics. Wow, yes, thank you. That's, that's very insightful. And in quite a bit of that, I, I had not previously um, heard discussed in academia, and so it's it's really a pleasure getting to hear um, your your perspective. Um, and with that, Karime, you can take the next one. Yes, thank you, Doctor. Um, this one um, is a little bit um, different from the other questions, but I, we thought it was important to ask: um, uh, How was how has capitalism or the desire for mm -hmm. conquering resources and land as we've discussed in our CC class that capitalism has evolved and mm -hmm. um, with the slave trade and for many different reasons over hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. um, how has this affected indigenous communities in both a historical and a contemporary sense? Um, and then going along with that, if it's not too much to ask a second mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, um, what are some solutions to help people who are still currently facing the egregious effects of colonialism? What role can the government play in this? What role can we play in our everyday lives? Mm -hmm. Great. And thank you so much for this question. This is a very, very uh, important question that um, that sometimes there in a lot of uh, Indigenous Studies scholarship in the North, uh, there may not be the link made. There is a growing um, uh, uh, trend to do this, but historically there may not be the link made between uh, capitalism and neoliberalism with uh, settler colonialism. And this is something that uh, Dr. Shannon Speed is bringing out in her work as a native scholar who also is uh, ha has a long history of work with Zapatistas in Mexico. Um, so uh, capitalism is absolutely key for understanding um, these dynamics uh, because the drive to increase profits, it ultimately necessitates um, a drive to reduce financial inputs. And those principally are the cost of labor, that's tied to the cost of land, the cost of raw materials. So, you know, things that you find in your environment. So say example, trees or wood um, and infrastructure like roads. Um, so in this drive then to increase profit, profits and decrease costs, it leads to these dynamics of um, 
white and settler stealing of indigenous land, killing off of the indigenous owners or caretakers of that land and exploiting labor, as you mentioned, uh, the plantation slave economy historically. And it is, it's happening uh, today in many forms. Um, Thankfully, people have been, begun or have recognized the injustice of uh, these dynamics uh, stateside, as, you're, as you mentioned, um, the recognition now of, of the slave trade of plantation economies. Um, but th there, are, there are contemporary forms of dispossession of um, indigenous gen genocide and labor exploitation that are happening today. Uh, sometimes within uh, the region that's now known as the U.S., and then often even uh, increasingly so outside um, in places like in places like Guatemala that uh, many people in the U.S. do not want to become or choose not to become aware of. So the effects on indigenous communities of um, the labor exploitation happening in um, in plantations in Guatemala, in, in factory settings. Um, a quick example, uh, again, I mentioned the 1980s genocide, which is, was largely happened in a region that the Guatemalan government wanted to exploit for, um, for profit, uh, a region that uh, is known as the Franja Transversal del Norte, which is basically uh, an area that uh, a, a, a highway uh, that was developed to extract Guatemala's resources for foreign markets. So they wanted to develop this region to create certain infrastructure, not for the inhabitants, the historical in inhabitants of the region, but basically to clear the way um, for Guatemala to integrate itself more into international markets. And in terms of solutions, uh, Really, uh, and I'm I'm saying this from my background as a community organizer. Um, part of it is I'll start with what the the piece about what we can do um, as private individuals, if we'll, if we'll use in, in, as individuals, if we'll use that term. So holding the government accountable um, and really I'm telling everyone, you know, I mean, education is a huge piece of this. And by this, I also just mean informal education, um, uh, telling, you know, your family members, your friends, I mean, getting people to care about these kinds of issues, to look beyond their own neighborhood, to understand what's happening. Um, it, it, on indigenous territories and the rest, with, whether it's within the U.S. or outside the borders of the U.S. Um, and also, it, you know, just stop being a consumer of or, a re, you know, a recipient of information uh, or, or media and become a creator and become really a generator of this. But that can be by, through being a researcher, that can be like through uh, efforts like this, through a podcast. Um, so not letting yourself just, um, you know, absorb the information that others are giving you, but really seeking it, seeking it out and being active and, um, you know, co-collaborating and disseminating this information among ourselves uh, and beyond, among ourselves and to go beyond, you know, to those that we don't know so that more greater and greater circles of people will know and will care. Um, and then in terms of the government, uh, I think a lot of these 
political campaigns that are focusing on the local level and up, bottom up, that's absolutely what needs to happen. You know, we need to replace the systems of government that are uh, only to, you know, to get the money out of politics and to really bring in people who are not um, uh, career politicians, but are really there to serve people and to serve their constituents and um, who are there of the people and for the people. And I say that because that will more closely model indigenous governments governance systems. And that is what is uh, happening in places like Bolivia uh, with the Zapatistas as well that are making a shift from representative forms of government where you elect representatives to do the work in Congress to direct governance where um, more of the decisions that will make a difference in people's lives are brought to more local uh, levels of governance so that people can really have a more concrete voice in what is happening with their government. Well, all I can say is yes, 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 um, I agree. And um, that's that's powerful to hear. And um, I can only hope that more of that is, is being done. Um, thank you. Uh, Grace, could you lead us into the next one, please? Yeah, I, I totally get it agree with Karime, this is so insightful and, and so powerful. And I'm glad we can be doing something, even if it's, you know, just a podcast to, to assist in these movements and, and to assist in the, the dismantling of systems that so systematically harm indigenous people in indigenous communities. And so with that, I will lead us into our last question um, about just kind of the narrator and the narrator's voice. Um, and so with that, it is, in your opinion, how does the perspective and background of the narrator or more colloquially, who tells the story, um, alter the historical accuracy of an event? And then since this is such, such heavy, such a heavy topic to discuss, um, to end on a more positive note, what hopes do you have for the future of indigenous voices in academia? Mm -hmm. So, uh, definitely this question of who tells a story has been the subject of many Indigenous struggles, uh, historically and contemporarily. And this was, or, and has been, and is important to uh, Sotzil, which is the theater group that's uh, the subject of my research, um, one major uh, reason for their founding was to tell the stories that were not and are still not uh, represented in the history books or the, in the school books uh, in, in Guatemala. Um, to tell that from their specific location uh, as Maya Kakchikel youth in uh, a rural hamlet um, in Tzolokia um, and to tell it in a way that uh, through theater that um, is not only through text but incorporates 
the embodied experience uh, multiple you know, senses, and that allows for then bringing in a much um, richer sense and conveying of uh, Maya ontology and spirituality and knowledge practices. So, um, so I just use that as, as an example of this question, um, you know, who telling the story um, is, is important. It's important to, um, uh, to bring more indigenous voices into, um, into not only histories, but also any discussion of um, contemporary events. Um, and so the future of, uh, of indigenous voices in academia is simply that there will be continuing to make more space. Um, I, I am very hopeful. I see a lot of indigenous uh, studies programs being created, bringing in indigenous scholars um, from many nations uh, globally um, and with different uh, diverse uh, life experiences. And I just want to conclude by also um, reflecting on something that um, the founder of Sotzil, um, who had, had told to me, and this is a couple years before, actually before he was assassinated uh, due to this context of violence in Guatemala. And um, he, he said that you know, in uh, Maya Cosmovision or worldview um, that everyone has uh, uh, Nahual or a particular energy and, um, and guide. And, and we, he basically, he said that everyone's energies are, are needed to uh, construct the kind of society that we want to live in. And, um, as you saw with your syllabus, as we see with um, the canon of school textbooks and history books, um, the the peoples whose voices uh, have dominated up until now has been skewed away from um, indigenous voices and the voices of other racialized and marginalized peoples. And so when we say everyone's energies, everyone energies are needed, that means really expanding the perspective so that we can really truly uh, finally um, and have a dynamic where really all the enormous diversity of um, peoples and uh, beings in the world can truly um, have some kind of say and be listened to um, respectfully and uh, be listened to in a way that can have an impact in, um, in our lives, basically. Oh my goodness, that is so wonderful. And I, I'm honestly speechless. Um, your knowledge and your, your plethora of experience and your willingness to follow these topics is so fascinating. And Karime and I just want to give the biggest of thanks to you for, for being here and for participating in our podcast today. It has been 
our utmost honor to have you and we are so thankful. Oh, you're welcome. This was a pleasure to do and uh, and I I look forward to, to hearing the podcast and also uh, your work going forward and the work of your class. Yes, thank you so much. I can only, I can only agree with Grace. Um, thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for, for your voice. Uh, I like your work. I, I know that the work that we're trying to do and that the indigenous people are trying to do is never ending. Unfortunately, it seems like we, we have to do so much more to continue this to like, we were talking about dismantling like these systems. Um, and I think that you know, this podcast and, and your, your writing are just are one way to do it. And I'm glad that that is getting out there, that more people are seeing it. And trust me when I say that, I'm probably going to be talking about this podcast and about your work to everyone that I see for the next, how, who knows how long, but yes, thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you also. Thank you. This was a pleasure. And, uh, and I am, also really excited for your work going forward. Um, so I do, uh, please do keep in touch with me about that and uh, really looking forward to, to the products of work of your class. Yes, thank you so much. All right, well, with that, we will let you go enjoy this thank you. somewhat enjoyable world that we're living in <laughs> pandemic. Um, so once again, yes, Skadima and I extend our, our greatest gratitude and our utmost respect, Dr. Thielen, and we, we look forward to sharing this with you. And so, yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>